When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Now, for those listeners who stuck with us over the last few weeks of miserableness as we discuss whether we prefer no Europe over the Europa Conference League, well, thanks for keeping the faith, because we've got no need for that this week. I mean, obviously, next week, of course, who knows? But we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Our guests this week are Art de Rocher, and welcome back after her three-week mini-break far, far away. (laughs) It's Amy Lawrence. Uh, Hello, guys. Hello, hello. Morning. Hello. Morning. Nice to see you. To see Before... you, nice. Yeah, I know. It, it, <laughs> I, do you know, I almost did. Uh, Art, do you even know what we mean by that, yeah, by the way? Yeah, oh, I, you do. I, know, I know who Bruce Forsyth is. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. There, there will be moments during this podcast where we do ask you things like that. It's not done in a patronising way. It's just because... You're ridiculously young, uh, and so. <laughs> well, I'm it's either le- that or we're ridiculously old. So there, it just there is on that, your but I'm, right? I'm a glass half full sort of guy, is what I'm saying. <laughs> and I have been all season, actually, and and not everyone has. I'll be honest. Um, before we get going, uh, on the back of Bruno Fernandez hilarious penalty miss on Saturday. And by the way, it's always funnier when they take 45 steps and do the little pity-patty, tippy-tappy thing. Um, We thought it is. It is just hilarious when they miss after all that preparation. Um, We thought we'd talk about our favourite opposition penalty misses. We did actually think maybe we could just do Man United penalty misses against us because that would be easy enough. But before, but Art, you've got one. It's not Man United, it's Liverpool, isn't it? We'll take it. We'll take uh, any Northern Giants missing penalties against us. It's absolutely fine. What have you got for us, Art? To be fair, I I thought there were, as you said, enough United penalties to go around. So I just thought I'd be a little bit different. And um, the one I've gone for, I'm not sure if it's 10 years ago this month, but I believe it is, is Wojciech Szczesny's double save against Dirk Kout. Um, So I think from the game, most people remember Van Persie's double and then I, f- I still, to this day, say that his volley against Liverpool into the near post is better than the volley against Everton earlier that season. But that's a discussion for another day. But um, yeah, the Dirk Kout penalty, I think uh, Chesney does a little shimmy and then he manages to guess right. And then he's back up on his feet and he almost hops across the um, across the goal line to, to push it. Um, the second shot out for a corner. And yeah, I think because he was just one of my favourite Arsenal goalkeepers of the modern era, I guess we'll call it. Um, that's just the one that stuck out for me. So hopefully I haven't broken the rules too much. <laughs> yeah, you have, Art. You're banned for the next three pods for doing that. No, 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 Art. It's absolutely fine. You can talk about what you want. I was at that game, by the way. Nothing like uh, winning away at Liverpool or Manchester United um, 
You know, I was going to include Man City, but I don't even care about them, if I'm totally honest with you. So we'll just take Liverpool and Man United. And, and Van Persie celebrated right in front of me, as I have told people on this pod on a number of occasions. And I was on Match of the Day later on that night. Which I... it's, it's so nice of him to celebrate just for you. He came over. Stoney, I, you know? As he scored, as he scored, I sort of beckoned him over and he went, I'll be there, Stoney, I'll be there. And he came right over to me and celebrated. And I was just, uh, it was a lovely moment. Lovely moment. Um, Amy, <laughs> we asked you before the pod, uh, penalty misses by May United, and you went, I bagged the 1988, and I thought there's no way that anyone else would do this anyway uh, <laughs> instead of you. Of course you're having it. So take us through uh, oh. 1988. Um, oh. Well, I mean, the, just just as a quick prelude, I, th- I think there is a really important distinction when we're talking about penalty misses or in particularly opposition penalty misses, there's a different feeling if your goalie saves it or if the guy misses, you know, there's a, I think there's an extra comedy value in the pure miss rather than actually, you know, the fact that you're able to celebrate the, you know, the uh, quality of your goalkeeper for having to make the save. Although obviously Aaron Ramsdale claimed it somehow (laughs) the way that he, um, (laughs) got right well there is a rich tradition of you know and this goes back to 1988 of a Man United player missing a penalty off target and then an Arsenal player gloating absolutely mercilessly uh, uh, in their hour of need and it all started with uh, Brian McClare 1988 this is an FA Cup fifth round game and uh, it's very evocative for me because it was my first time in the North Bank and it was absolutely, it was one of those games that was so rammed. Um, so as a kind of first real terrace experience, it was, it was, a, it was sort of, I was incredulous um, to be quite literally sort of stuck in the midst of so much sort of movable humanity uh, and emotion. And the penalty was, uh, Arsenal were going 2-1. The penalty came in the last couple of minutes or stoppage time or something. And it would have been an equaliser for Man United to, to take it back to Old Trafford for a replay. And Brian McClare stepped up to take it into the North Bank. And the North Bank did that thing where, you know, where people do behind the goal when someone's kicking into that goal to try and put them off. Everyone's waving and jumping around. And I could not see shit. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I think I was sort of, I vaguely remember, be, you know, I could just about, it was just about level with the bloke in front of me's armpit and there was no real way of getting any leverage to see above anyone. So I was entirely dependent on the reaction of the crowd to know how the penalty went. And, uh, you know, moments later, unbeknownst to me, the ball was on its way into the uh, top side, I think, of the North Bank and everyone went mental. So that was how I knew he missed. Um and it was it was a just one of those sort of like epic sort of crowd moments, you know, big game and big drama uh, all rolled into one. And as Brian McClare walked forlornly back to the uh, centre circle, uh, you know, or walked a bit further back, so it was going to be presumably a goal kick. Nigel Winterburn just went straight up to him, and how should we put this? Exchange pleasantries. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he really <laughs> rubbed it in. And that was the precursor to a mo- monumental fight at Old Trafford a couple of years later where, you know, McClare had waited to get his revenge on Nigel Winterburn. And did it, um, yeah. Goodness. 
and started a famous brawl. But so yeah, there was it's, it's the sort of sequence of events where you have the penalty miss and then the you know the kind of almost sort of Simpsons ha ha you know from the the, the people who have who are very relieved that that penalty was missed. And of course that was replicated in his own special way by Martin Keown on Van Nistelrooy and to an extent by Ramsdale yesterday on, uh, yes, a couple of days ago by um, Ramsdale on Bruno Fernandes. So, yep, all very enjoyable. Very, very enjoyable. Um, and, and really, Amy, the start of the rivalry, wasn't it? I mean, obviously, uh, obviously Arsenal May Night goes back quite a long way, but in terms of the the rancor and the and the sort of general bitterness between the two teams that was the moment really yeah i think it well actually uh, arguably there was a game up at old trafford i think the year or two before when um, norman whiteside got dave rocastle sent off in a way that arsenal were very unhappy about and i think when you ask that generation they will say that was maybe the first trigger point and then it just uh, ratcheted up uh, and obviously took a big um, pulse forward with uh, with that McClare penalty miss and, and Nigel Winterburn's uh, comments, but it, it was it wasn't the beginning of that rivalry, which you know people obviously think a lot about the Ferguson Wenger rivalry as being sort of symbolic of this uh, of an era of something special between two huge teams, sort of slinging it out with everything they've got and with huge qualities. But really, the rivalry started with two Scots, and that was Ferguson and George Graham. <laughs> yeah, well, that can happen, as we all know. <laughs> My son currently living in Glasgow sees it every week, I'll be honest with you. Um, yeah, well, you mentioned um, Rude van Nistelrooy and Martin Keown. That was, again, uh, uh, at Old Trafford, that one. And um, last minute of the game, and we all know what happened, Martin Keown shouting, jumping on Rude van Nistelrooy and what a, what a marvellous moment. And, I, and apologies for people who've heard this story before, but I saw it in South Africa. I was in South Africa in a bar and I was surrounded by Manchester United fans. And when, it, when he missed the penalty, there was this sort of roar came from somewhere in the bar. And when I looked round, I realised it was me. I made this this sort of primal, sort of visceral noise, and all the all these, and I was surrounded by all these Man United fans, all in their replica shirts, who I don't think they'd really sort of come across proper North London passion for a game like that before, and and it was I completely forgot myself because I'm honestly there may be twenty Man United fans in there and me, uh, but they all looked terrified. At Absolutely terrified, and I sort of understood why. I was slightly scared of the noise I made myself. Um, and 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 I know we're talking about. Um, uh, I think Amy's right. When when the opposition player misses it, it's obviously it, there is extra comedy value. But a word for Jens Lehmann's save from Raquel May in the semi final of the Champions League uh, against Villarreal. That that was the moment. That was not only the moment when we reached the European Cup final. That was also the Champions League final. That was also the moment when I tried to phone Eurostar and the prices went up by about four hundred quid <laughs> to try and get to Paris. And I said, I said to my mates, we should book it beforehand. I'm feeling confident. My mates put me off. And uh, uh, anyway, do you know, I'm what? with your mates on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you think if I'd have booked it? Do you, are you saying? Are you saying if I'd have booked it? 
uh, Raquel May would have scored that penalty, is what you're saying. <laughs> I'm just saying that I wouldn't like to take that chance. Right. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, it cost me 300 quid. But you By know, the I'm... way, if you watch that penalty back again, you can see how over the sort of few seconds or 30 seconds or whatever it is that precedes the penalty, um, Jens, Jens Lehmann, like, very slowly enters Raquel May's head. He does. He does, yeah. I think you're right. It's written all over his face. It's quite extraordinary. Worth a watch. Uh, yeah, um, we can talk more extensively about that at some point. But um, before we get going further, I should remind you, uh, you can read everything Arsenal on The Athletic, and there's a lot this week. Uh, you can, uh, with a subscription, head to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod to find our latest offer. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Saka. Nope. Referee doesn't give that. Shaka from Red! Oh, what about that? Ready, Shaka! Massive goal! 3-1 to the Gunners! So, Arsenal 3, Man United on a Saturday morning. Uh, Amy, I think it's safe to say that the 12.30 kickoff did not affect the atmosphere. <laughs> I know, and it's funny that, because as we sort of sat down for the kickoff, I, I moaned to the first, I think it was Carl Anker, our Man United correspondent, about yeah. bloody this shouldn't be a lunchtime kickoff. I was slightly offended that <laughs> a game of this significance should be the Saturday morning slot. Felt like, felt like pr- probably you, you'd want a lot of people to have been down the pub beforehand for a bit longer. And five thirty in the afternoon <laughs> is when it should have been. Five thirty, get in but the pub at midday, and then you know go there completely wasted. At you're 4:30. quite right, Ian. Though it was, it, it was. Um, Fired up from the start, and I think that's a testament to as much mentioned on this podcast and elsewhere, and by Mikel Arteta, the kind of vibe that's going on between the supporters and the team and the club as a whole, where you know people were really up for it. I noticed that, um, quite often because I was in the press box, which is not always my favorite place for an important game, but because you have you feel a bit confined emotionally and having to concentrate in a different way, but. I just kept seeing people in front of me in the normal seat, so to speak. Like someone, someone would just jump up, like as if they'd had a kind of electric shock, and like and sort of clench their fists and sort of scream something. And that people were just popping up all over the place at various moments of the game, like letting out this kind of probably not dissimilar to your primal scream in South Africa, but you know these little moments of kind of pure come on emotion so you could see that people you know while being sort of part of the bigger mass and the crowd and you know willing everybody on there was just these sort of everyone it was almost as if everyone was kind of having their own level of suffering because it was a hard game to watch you know it was deeply unrelaxing I actually genuinely thought you know felt like I could vomit at certain stages you know (laughs) I, I found it that 
That's stressful. <laughs> oh, hang on a minute. Hang on. Uh, oh, you watched it at home, right? Because uh, yeah. for some reason you hesitated to go on the ticket exchange and to, like for two yeah. days. For you know, but you watched it at home. But you said it was incredibly stressful as well. Yeah. So I, I was watching at home uh, with my brother in the room, who doesn't usually watch ninety minutes of football games, but he watched say the first half of the Chelsea game, and then he came in for this game. I was like, are you sure you want to? Ro- are you sure you want to watch this? Because I'm going to be unbearable. <laughs> and I think almost like every two minutes, I w- had to like face away from the TV because it was just the most stressful game I think I've ever watched this season. Yeah. Um, like Amy said, I think I probably had similar experiences where I just would randomly just get out of my chair and shout something at the TV, and it's just. Uh. It was unbearable, but um, I, I guess it was pleasantly unbearable because they went on to win. But yeah, honestly, I, I just felt sick watching it. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I guess no. that is that's what Arsenal Man United does to people. So, well, it yeah. is very interesting, isn't it? That we we all put ourselves through the ringer. I w- I said to Art before we started, I was absolutely exhausted at the end. I was completely shattered by the experience uh, because you you care about this lot. You genuinely care about this lot, and we I think we we we've all sort of talked about that connection between the fans and the team, and they came roaring out. Michael Cox did a piece on the Athletic this week uh, about the chaos that is Arsenal. Uh, at the moment. It, Amy, it's not controlled, is it? I mean, Mikel Arteta was always quite a controlled footballer. He wants to be a controlled manager. This is the sort of the antithesis of control, isn't it? Or well, certainly it was uh, on Wednesday and, and Saturday. Uh, exactly. And I mean, that's, that gives it an extra layer of fascination because in some ways it's so uh, anti the ideals of Arteta. Um, and it's almost as if having tried certain other things in the kind of horrible three weeks uh, or three game, you know, nightmare where it seemed everything was jettisoned that it's a bit like, well, I've tried everything that I can think of. And he did a bunch of gambles, none of which seemed to come off at all, which presumably all made lots of sense in his head beforehand. Um, And it's a bit like throwing caution to the wind and just saying, okay, I, I I can't imagine what the sort of team talks and so on were and are, you know, over these last couple of games. Because as soon as the players kind of cross the right line, they're they're kind of there's a, a mayhem ambiance, and and it seems to be that that mayhem has kind of infects both teams now, which has been helpful. Because I think if 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 it's just Arsenal mayhem and the other team is kind of cool and organised and controlled, I think that would be more difficult in a way. But because it's kind of a generic mayhem, then it's like who's who can have the moments of clarity and the madness. And fortunately, in the last two games, Arsenal have had those moments of clarity to win them. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, James said on this on this pod, Art, and I, and I ask you this first. He said that the current iteration of Arsenal, this is an emotional team. I mean, it's certainly the most connected I've felt with a team for maybe 15 years, genuinely. I mean, obviously, I enjoyed the FA Cup wins and it was great, but genuine emotion 
coming off the off the terraces, uh, out of the stands and onto the pitch and back the other way. Do you feel that as well? Do you think this is a particularly, uh, almost a highly strung team, really? Yeah, I think the person who probably embodies that most is Martin Erdegaard. You see it not just in the way he celebrates goals, even if it's not his goal that's been scored, but just the way he plays. And I think he's been like that since he was here on loan, really. You saw how quickly Mikata took to him because he was probably not just a leader in terms of how he played and uh, when he had the ball, but also actually leading in terms of instructing his teammates where to be off the ball and almost carrying them through games. And I think you've seen a continuation of that this season. And then alongside that, you have, I guess, the passion, which comes through not just him, but then you see as obviously I think Amy's probably going to chat about um, Bukayo Saka and Emil Smith-Rowe, how they've performed throughout the season, but also they got their, I guess you'd call it little reward of of meeting Thierry Henry and Dennis Bergkamp (laughs) after the game. And uh, I saw in the Twitter video Arsenal put out, Dennis Bergkamp said to them, I can tell you're the English guys. (laughs) And I think, um, I don't know, I'll leave Amy to, to chat about that a bit more. I've got to be honest, though, Art, when I was talking about the emotional side of the game, Martin Erdegaard was not the person I expected you to talk really? about. Really? No, no, I was, I, I, do you know what? I won't say I would have bet the house uh, <laughs> because I've, my missus finds that a bit <laughs> unsettling that I would do that on any football-related chat. But I would have thought we were talking about Granite Xhaka embodying that emotion more than anyone, really. The way, when that goal went in, um, I mean... Amy, do you feel that was a sort of redemption for him, or or do we talk about that? Do we get a bit I carried think we're away past with this sort that of stuff? Are we? I think we're past that. I, I, think I only just wanted to ask. That, to be yeah. honest, I'd like yeah. to think that everybody's kind of, you know, you might have a, you might have a stand on it, and that might be something. You know, I know people have strong feelings one way or the other about granite, but I think that it's it's a point now where you have to accept the player and the human that he is, and that. The you know the people at Arsenal want him there, and he wants to be there uh, for everything that he gives. But it was obviously a, a a fabulous moment, you know. But I think he enjoyed that moment not as a moment of personal vindication, but I think he enjoyed that moment as a as a team man. Yeah, knowing what securing what the win means. Yeah, you know, one thing about Granite that I really believe from having uh, had conversations with him before and and from what everybody that who I know who knows him says absolutely fundamentally about him is that he really really cares about Arsenal whatever people think about him as a player or a person he behaves in such a way where he puts the club first in his everyday life let's just say at the moment you know I think that that celebration was really about him knowing that Arsenal had fourth in their hands and then they dropped it. And through sheer sort of force of will and personality and uh, and moments of brilliance, they've got it in their hands again. And that's why I think he did that. Because 3-1 Man United, you know, Man United didn't lay a glove on Arsenal after that. And at 2-1, it was very, very scary. No, that was the only controlled bit of the performance, wasn't it? The last 20 minutes when we basically... Ah, Rob Holding. 
Rob Holding makes I mean, a huge difference. You know what? Many, I hadn't even had I'd him in like the list. I'd like to know how many people in the ground uh, spent about the 20 minutes before Rob Holding came on saying, fucking bring on Rob Holding! <laughs> <laughs> what are you he waiting great, for? He was great. He won so <laughs> many Excuse headers. Excuse my language, but... Um... It's all right. It's all right. He won so many headers, didn't he, really? And he did steady things in the defence. Let's talk about um, the defending a little bit. Um <laughs> I mean, I think, well, no, I I think, um, I'll ask you first. Is it fair to say that the only reason we're not going on about how panicky Cedric was uh, is because Nuno Tavares looked even (laughs) panicky, more panicky? Um, Honestly, in terms of the stress of that game, (laughs) I I was asking for Tomiyasu to come on probably after about 25 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, one leg. Don't care if he's limping. My brother probably... I don't know. The the word he heard most on Saturday was Tomiyasu. <laughs> I'm I'm 100 percent sure because yeah. yeah. I was he just... came on three minutes before the end. Of <laughs> still great, still great to see him though, wasn't it? Let's be fair, still great to see him because you think we need him back, don't we? Well, I think that you can. You know, the last couple of games have shown, or <clears throat> the last few games have shown that you can. You know, it's pretty hard having. One of the fullbacks out. Uh, when I say the fullbacks, I, I'm referring, of course, to Tommy Esu and Tierney, the first choice fullbacks. But having both out at the same time has been so damaging. Um, so I think the question then becomes: Can Arsenal manage with, you know, with just one missing rather than two? And hopefully, it'll be a lot more uh, comfortable. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Nuno Tavares, Amy, uh, it's not. It was only it was earlier in the season when he was playing so well that there were questions as to whether Kieran Tierney would even get back in the team. Um, he really was excellent, and then obviously it went a little bit wrong for him. And I felt I don't know if you thought this being in the stadium, the crowd were getting on his back a little bit. He's a young player; he makes mistakes. He's shooting. He should never be allowed to shoot again. I mean, he's worse than Thomas Partey. Is said that's how bad he is. He's shooting, uh, but. He does add a certain dynamism when we're going forward, doesn't he? He's a a very raw player, and I think that that what you get with with players who need refinement and need some education and adaptation and and growing extremes, you know. And this season, you could put together a highlights reel where he looks fabulous from early on in the season, and a highlights reel which looks pretty hard viewing from. <laughs> More from recently. the start, the first of Nottingham but Forest game or the Liverpool away I, game. Yeah. I do, I do feel that um, confidence is, you know, it, it, it's such a huge part of it, uh, not just football or, or Premier League players or whatever. Just all of us as humans, you know, if you're confident in what you're doing and you feel kind of you can be relaxed about what you're doing, then most things you probably make fewer mistakes and be less jittery, you know, uh, and if your confidence disappears for whatever reason, then suddenly everything can feel unexpected, unpredictable, difficult, panicky. And I, I mean, I'd, I'd like to think that he's got a bit of time on his side, you know, he, he, it's the nature of the situation that he's had to come in and play quite a lot of football lately because we just haven't had you know, alternatives. Whether Mikel wanted to play him or not, I think he's felt he's it's been the right thing to do. I mean, 
I'm sure you've talked about this before, but it felt like being without fullbacks for a while seemed an obvious thing to go to three at the back on a kind of more uh, consistent basis just to kind of make less of a issue of it if you're playing wing backs yeah. and you're not asking people to do quite the same jobs. But Mikel's got this hybrid thing going on and it's worked in the last couple of games. So, but you know, there's five more to go. And I just think playing chaos football is, is fraught with, with risk. It's, it's not that, you know, the, the, what guarantees you have are, are decimated. So it, it, it's not really sustainable. No, it is. So Tommy Yasu coming back in essentially is helpful in that regard. Excellent. <laughs> Should make it, us slightly less chaotic. No, you're right. It is. But we don't want to go too unchaotic because the chaotic stuff is working. Because before then, it was absolutely dreadful. Yeah, the three games uh, that we lost, <laughs> the pods were not happy places, uh, to be honest with you. But. Um, uh, yeah, I was going to say it is fraught with risk, not least giving any one of the people who sit around me a heart attack, uh, to be honest with you, because it was incredibly, incredibly stressful watching. A um, couple of other people I want to talk about. Eddie and Ketia. Oh, I mean, is it just a case that he needed a run of games uh, to get going? Because he is leading the line now. He's starting to drop off. He's, I mean, I, I, there was one moment in the first half when he, uh, sorry, in the second half, when uh, uh, he came, he dropped a, a little bit and Lindelof followed him and he held the ball up, did a couple of little shimmies and laid it off. And I thought, well, that's what Alex Lacazette can do well. Uh, but Eddie provides way more than that. And and I'm happy he's in the team for the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the season, assuming that that is the case. What do you think? Yeah, I think um, when you're getting 10, 15 minutes every few weeks, <laughs> no one's really going to see the proper you. And I've, I do feel like when he has got an opportunity, say earlier in the season in the league cup, there were moments where you saw a little bit of that development. Like you said, Ian, in terms of him being able to drop off a bit more. He's always and done Mikata. it in the league cup though. Oh, it's, it's about Sorry? doing it in the prem. He's always done it. In I know, the league I know. Cup, though. It's about doing it in the prem. I know, but, um, Mikata has said he's seen improvement in that side of his game. And I think even in the Chelsea game, yes, you saw, I guess, the typical Eddie moments, like him pressing for the goal and, I guess, the poacher's finish for his second goal. Love but there was a little, <laughs> There was a little bit of that in the Chelsea game as well. And then, as you mentioned, throughout the United game, you saw flashes of that as well. And I don't think Eddie's necessarily the answer for the, for the long term, but definitely he offers more of an all-round presence going forward than Lacazette has done in probably the last three months. Um, and going into, um, I guess, West Ham away, Tottenham away, you've still got Everton at home, Leeds at home as well, and Newcastle away. I want someone who's actually going to give defenders problems to answer. And I think Eddie's doing that at the minute. Um, so yeah, I think he's well within his rights to kind of maintain that starting spot as a number nine and hopefully um, continue displaying those developments. And I think for him, it's probably not the worst situation to be in in the world because he can still control what happens to him in the summer. If he, if he wants to stay, everybody knows that Mikel Arteta and Arsenal want to keep him. But if he doesn't, he, I don't think, 
feel like he's going to be short of options if he continues to impress. What would you do, Amy, at this point? Because it is a, it's a tricky situation. You sort of want to keep him, but at the same time, we're talking about bringing in Gabriel Jesus, scored four goals yesterday uh, against Watford and, and, and has Premier League experience and knows what he's doing. So assuming that we spend the money on, on him, Eddie's still not going to be first team if we continue to play the way we do. But we would, I personally would like to keep him. What do you think? Well, I think you can't just have one striker. You can't only have one in the squad. You can't really only have two. And I mean, obviously, there are certain <laughs> yeah. players who might play there, even if it's not what you know you uh, expect them to do all the time. We still don't really know about Martinelli as a you know as a more central striker, and, and whether that's something that comes further down the line. Um, you know. Mikel Arteta does seem to quite like these flexible players who can fulfil different positions across the front line. Um, and I think if I think if Eddie wants to stay and the club want him, well, great. But you know, I'm sure he would have his eyes wide enough open to know that you're not going to start every game. In some ways, what he's doing reminds me a tiny bit, potentially, and this is dependent on the last five games, but. If he scores another three or four goals in that period and it gets us in, into the top four, you'd be looking at it being slightly reminiscent of like Emmy Martinez suddenly coming in after kind of a long, long time at the club, not quite making the impact and taking the final step. And then suddenly everyone goes, wow, you know, he's a player. He can play in the Premier League. Mm. Yeah. Like, then puts all the cards in in the, you know, in their hands. The only difference, I suppose, is that we've got we've got some money from for Emmy Martinez. We're not getting a penny True. for Eddie if he leaves um, on a free. Um, just two other players I want to briefly talk about before I want to talk about your piece, uh, Amy. Uh, Mohamed El Nene uh, has suddenly stepped in for the last two games. I read somewhere that he's set to sign a new contract. I saw him and uh, Mikel walking off together arm in arm. I mean, he loves it at Arsenal, doesn't he, Amy? He, he really does, and and I like. I, I like his energy. I like having him about. And and in the last two games, Ian Wright um, featured him on Match of the Day on Saturday and how well he'd done linking defence and attack, doing Thomas Partey's job, uh, really. And and um, a player like that, with that energy and that attitude, good to have around the younger players, I would suggest. Yeah, but also a manager's dream because to have someone that if you need them, you can call on them, but you know they're not going to be knocking on your door if they're not in the team is really helpful. Plus, I think a lot depends. Arsenal will have already got a, probably a massive sort of spreadsheet or various spreadsheets about players and situations according to, you know, the three different outcomes really for uh, the next season. One is with Champions League, one is with Europa League and one is with either Conference League or no Europe at all type of thing. And someone like the way, where someone like Alneni fits into the squad differs according to where Arsenal are going to be next season. If Arsenal are in the Champions League, I would say it's just really handy to have him around, big time. If Arsenal are not, then maybe you're progressing one of the younger players and, you know, there's different sort of opportunities around. But his kind of, his know-how and his um, absolutely exemplary sort of team behaviour, you know, outstanding sort of attitude to training, to being in the squad, helpfulness, not being too demanding, trying his best at all times. You know, he might not be the you know the most eye-catching player Arsenal have ever had, but he 
gives everything to his job in the in the squad. Uh, and he, you know, he's no trouble. And you know what? Managers have a lot of trouble. And any squad has a lot of trouble because people are difficult, mostly. And if you've got some people around that you could totally rely upon not being a problem, it's pretty handy. And he's yeah. okay. I mean, it's not useless. No, no, no. And, you know, I- he's got hundreds of caps for Egypt. It's just a no-nonsense kind of a, a player. No, no. I, I listen. I, I'm in agreement with you. I, um, I, I wanted to ask you about Bukayo Saka. Just talk about his bravery for a minute or two. Um, I mean, we all know what happened with the Euros, uh, with the penalty against Donnarumma. Uh, he's since taken two: one against uh, Edouard Mendy and one against David de Gea, and and buried him basically. And he, and the second one, by the way, he, he knew he must have known that de Gea had seen the one he took against Chelsea in midweek, and he put it the other way. I, I mean. We we praise him every week. He's still twenty years old. It's utterly ridiculous to me how what he's what he's been through, how mature he is. You know, Amy's talking about Mo El Nene and and the maturity and and the no trouble. Saka's the same. Yeah, I think for me, in terms of the United game, what kind of clued me in or just made me feel almost extra confident was I think it was in the first 15, 20 seconds. Um, the ball looks like it's gone out of play, but Saka's just somehow kept it in play. Then he's dribbled past another play, played a, a really nice one-two, and he's won a foul. And that almost fearlessness that has been present with him since he broke into the team is just something that I feel not a lot of players have at his age and has taken him so far to the point where you're not looking at him as a kid anymore, even though he's still only 20 years old. And I think just the, the value in that is is unreal because you can't almost discount him as someone who is just going to float through a game. He he is going to impact a game, whether he scores a goal, makes an assist or not. Bukayo Saka is going to have an influence on a football match. And I think, especially when you play him on that right wing, he he's given that left back, whoever it is, problems. At Chelsea is Marcus Alonso, little Megs, uh, just as he gets into the box. And then he obviously got his reward with the penalty in added time. But I think even without, even if he didn't score that penalty, he would have been outstanding at Stamford Bridge. And again, at the Emirates, I think he just set the tone. And I think when, when you have someone who is that young, able to dictate how an afternoon is going to go, then you're in a special place really because I don't feel like there are many 20 year olds across the Premier League or across most leagues that will be able to do that and considering you've got someone on the other wing who's about what just over a year older than him who's doing similar things um, it's very exciting and also um, I just want to apologise to Mohamed Elneny because <laughs> on last week's pod I said I wouldn't I wouldn't throw you did. him in. You um, did. So I just want to put my hands up for that and say I was wrong. <laughs> no, it's all right. We've hey, we've all been wrong at various points. Uh, but, um, yeah, I don't mind being wrong. Um, so well, yeah, it's good to be case. wrong sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Amy Art mentioned uh, Emil Smith Rowe and Bukayo Saka. There, uh, you wrote a piece 
talking about uh, the fact that a lot of the ex-players, particularly Dennis Bergkamp, Thierry Henry, uh, came back. We They were sat in the stand just above where I was sitting and, and it was actually was upsetting me, to be honest, because everyone around me, instead of concentrating on the game, was looking up at them and taking photos of them. Uh, also, Jens Lehmann was there. Edu was obviously around. Freddie Lundberg. Gilberto was there as well. Um, I mean... This stuff, it, your piece, is it really about institutional memory and how important that sort of stuff is? And it sort of seemed to be lost for a while, but now there seems to be a bit more connection again. Cool, bloody hell, that's deep. Um... <laughs> no, but I'm sort of feeling like there is an emotional connection. And I think those things go back beyond just the team and the fans now to stuff that happened 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of that generation um, can, you know, can feel what the, the crowd are feeling, which is that they're watching this team and they they like it and they want to connect with it. So, you know, for them to be coming back and be around is, I think, part of their own feeling of like, they might not have felt in recent years a bit like the rest of us, that it was, it was a bit more of a grind to, to you know, to come along and watch. Um, but I think there's some sort of magnet kind of drawing them back, and it was really interesting seeing. I mean, particularly Dennis, who hasn't been back for many, many a year. Uh, I mean, Thierry is around a lot more, and and um, Freddie, and uh, you know, certain players are are just much more around if they live in London and they do a bit of media work and they just come to games and things like that. But, um, you know, particularly Jens, Gilberto and Dennis, you know, they're not here all the time. So when they come to London, it's a big deal to come back to Arsenal. And Dennis was really quite misty-eyed, He kind, which was interesting because, of course, his, his, his Arsenal memories are not at the Emirates apart from his testimonial. But he he was really taken by being back. I think he felt a deep something inside him about being back at Arsenal. And he was there in midweek as well, wasn't he? He was wandering around the stadium midweek. Yeah, but well, he, he um, he's he he and Henrietta's wife have just had their first grandchild. Um, Don <laughs> oh Donny Van der Beek uh, yeah. is married to Estelle, uh, their daughter, their oldest. So they came here for, you know, the birth and for the, the kind of early time of, of of their new grandchild. And I think being back in London where they had such happy family times and they felt, you know, they absolutely loved living in London. I think it's kind of, you could see that it was a reminder for them of really, really happy time of their lives. And I just look at Dennis and, I, I you know, I feel a bit like a scratch record because every time I've seen him virtually since he's left periodically, like every few years where there's been some sort of event, I just think it's mad he's not at the club. And even the way he speaks and the little observations that he has and the way that he is with the young players and you saw how he connected with Emil Smith-Rowe and, and, and Saka on those little videos He's like a father when he put his arm around a meal in the tunnel. I, you could weep. It was so beautiful. And 
he's giving him little pieces of advice and he's telling him, I enjoy watching you. And, you know, this is what, you know, these are the things that you're doing well. And this is what you, and you just think, imagine, imagine him mentoring these guys and not just being around for 10, 15 minutes once in a while when you're at a game, but actually spending some quality time with them, helping them. He's also a brilliant, you know, coach of young players, which he showed when he was at Ajax. And if you ever have the privilege of hearing him, or if you've read his book, which I highly recommend, called Stillness and Speed, which is superb. It's great. It's so insightful about learning about the game and thinking about the game. And to be able to tap into that for a high-caliber young player at Arsenal, just, uh, I think it would be tremendous. Do you know what? I'm not even going to add any more to that. I agree. Read Amy's piece uh, and uh, and get emotional, which is what we want at the moment, which is what is sustaining us. Um, <laughs> this is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. Yes, this is Handbrake Off. I'm Ian Stone here with Art de Roche and Amy Lawrence. Art, briefly, uh, Arsenal won 3-0. Arsenal women won 3-0 away at Everton. The more important result, though, obviously we needed a win. The more important result, I turned on the women's game 65 minutes in yesterday. Uh, Spurs were drawing 1-1 with Chelsea. Chelsea, by the way, had had, uh, I actually said were down to 10 men, but they were down to 10 women, in fact. Uh, And um, it's the only time I've ever uttered the phrase, come on, you Spurs. But Chelsea went on and won. There's still two games to go. Uh, Spurs, by the way, play Chelsea again, don't they, uh, on Thursday night? Yes, uh, three games, I believe it is. But, is it um, three? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and Arsenal actually have to play Spurs at the Emirates on, I believe it's May 3rd or May 4th, actually. Right. And that was another, I guess, 90 minutes of just pure stress where you see that glimmer of hope when um, uh, Chelsea had their players sent off, Spurs went ahead and the hopes just ripped out from underneath you. I think... Um, still on though, mate. <laughs> it's still a possibility. Uh, it's still possible, but um, they're just running out of time. And I don't think it's the worst situation in the world for them to be in because I doubt many people would have expected them no. to be in this position at this point in the season. But you would hope that there are still points for Chelsea to drop at some point in the season. But yeah, I think when you're in a position where you're depending on other teams, let alone Spurs, to, to do you a favour, then you probably can't complain too much if you don't go on and, and win the title. But um, there's still definitely, I guess, encouraging signs there. I mean, Beth Mead just broke the assist record for the WSL last night and I believe scored her 50th goal for Arsenal. So next few weeks is uh, massive, so um, hopefully it all goes well. And we'll have a proper uh, look back uh, at the women's season, which has been amazing, by the way, uh, in the next few weeks. Let's have a song before we end. Um, Amy, I'm going to come to you first. What have you got for us? 
Well, we had a tweet from Gareth, uh, whose Twitter name is at Save Me Some Salad, proposing <laughs> Julian Cope with elegant chaos. But I'm not going to go with that because I don't think it was very elegant. No. But chaos was very much the uh, uh, the feeling. And in fact, you know, it was that word was just going round and round in my head while I was watching the game. And I, I went back in time to uh, the early 1990s and uh, a CD I had called Chaos Theory, which was sort of early 19 hardcore dance music. Yeah. And I thought, oh, pick a tune from Chaos Theory. <laughs> so I've gone for Mannix Feel uh, Feel Real Good, the remix, which is a great track. On which we all felt on Saturday at about half two. Uh, Art, what have you got? Uh, I might break the rules a little bit. So it's not it's not an what? actual song, it's it's an album. Uh, Art Habits Maverick. And... What have you got? <laughs> Habits and Contradictions by Schoolboy Q, because I feel like that just sort of embodies the chaos that is going on at Arsenal at the minute. Um, so yeah, staying on the chaotic theme, but um, slightly breaking the rules, if that's okay. It, uh, no, Art. No, <laughs> I want something else. Of course it's okay, Art. There are no rules. This is this is an Arsenal podcast, right? It's chaotic in <laughs> itself. Uh, I'm having our second That Emotion by Smokey Robinson and The Miracles, I believe. Um, just because I am feeling it at the moment. And, and I honestly haven't felt it for quite some time. I much prefer the Japan version, by the way, if we're allowed that. <laughs> You're so 90s. <laughs> That's 80s, actually. Oh, okay, fair enough. Can't beat a bit of David Sylvian. <laughs> yeah, no. If you're okay. me. <laughs> I, it's all right. It's all right. I, it's fine. Hey, that's what makes the world go around. Uh, well, we're glad. Uh, thank you for staying with us, uh, listeners. Um, after the upset of the last three games, or the last those three games that we lost, uh, it's a much happier pod this week. Hopefully, that will continue. Uh, thanks to our, thanks to Amy, and thanks to Abby, our producer. I'm Ian Stone. Nice to speak to you. This has been Handbreak Off, the Arsenal podcast, brought to you by the Athletic. Have a good day. Mm-hmm.